The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is Judith Flanders, whose most recent book, just out in paperback, is called A Place for Everything, and it tells the curious history of alphabetical order. Judith, welcome. Alphabetical order is something that's so kind of ingrained, as you explained in your introduction, so habitual to us, that it's practically invisible. But it isn't an automatic thing, is it? I mean, as your history shows, it wasn't people's first recourse. It's a relatively recent invention. Well, it wasn't people's first recourse. And equally, it's not our first recourse. What I discovered looking at different sorting methods was they're all invisible. The only ones that aren't invisible are the ones that are so bizarre that we just stop and stare, point and laugh. But... In the old days, when we had telephone directories, we think, well, of course, they're alphabetical order. We don't need to think. But of course, they're not. They're geographical first. If you're looking up a number in Aberdeen, you don't look in the London telephone directory. After that, they then divide into occupational, residential or commercial. Only then do they go into alphabetical order. So... Although we say alphabetical order is our primary sorting method, very often it's second or third level down. And the only difference between now and the bulk of history is that it is second or third level down, whereas in the past they tended not to use it at all, or at most used what was called first letter sorting order, which is simply all the books by authors whose name begins with A go over there, all the books whose authors' names begin with B go over there, but not going past that first letter. And what got you started? Because you say, you know, it is kind of invisible. What made you suddenly think, hey, there's this thing we use all the time that nobody thinks about. There's a book here. What what got you curious? It was a happy confluence of two different things. I read a review of a book that I think was possibly about Wikipedia, but I don't know because I never read the book. I only read the review, like so much. And it said in passing um, something about the shift to online reference. Searching has meant that whatever this book was about, the author did not discuss the fact that things no longer had to be in alphabetical order. And I kind of thought, huh, interesting, and moved on with my life. And a couple of months after that, there was a Joseph Cornell exhibition at the Royal Academy. And the curators of the exhibition focused very much on the idea of classification and sorting and how, as a surrealist, Cornell was more interested in putting things that didn't belong together together. And those two things came together in my head. 
classification and alphabetical order. And I thought, huh, it's interesting. I wonder about the history of alphabetical order and I couldn't find anything. So I thought, hmm, this might be something that's worth lo looking into. And look into it, you did at great depth. I mean, of course, before you have an alphabetical order, you have to have an alphabet. And I was very interested in your preface to read this thing that, you know, we think writing has evolved separately at various places all over the world. Well, a, a handful of different times, at least. But writing with an alphabet, we think, has only been thought of once. Is that right? This appears to be what historians of writing think. I am not, of course, a historian of writing, so I simply believe them, absolutely. But it appears to be the case that this idea of representing not the meaning of a word or even, as has happened elsewhere, the sound of a syllable, but simply taking each phoneme and representing it with a symbol which has no meaning at all. It's not an ideogram, it's not a pictogram, it, it has no inherent meaning. Was invented once in Upper Egypt, probably by people who were not terribly educated and therefore had not learnt the complex writing forms that were then in use. And they used it as kind of a creole, a way of speaking amongst traders or mercenary soldiers who did not share a common language. And it's then the ancestor of all of the alphabetic scripts we have. That seems to be the assumption. There was apparently at one point a thought that one of the Abyssinian forms of writing might be different, but now it is assumed to be part of the family. The only one that they are not 100% sure about is the script in Easter Island, which has yet to be appropriately deciphered, and they think that might be entirely different. But that seems to be the only other one. And is, I mean, it seems quite obvious that the sort of computational efficiency and ease that that sort of combinatorial system gives you gives the languages that use it a great head start, in a sense. Is there a sort of accepted understanding of why it never spread? Were the sort of ideographic and pictographic writing forms that we find in, say, China and Japan and other parts of the East so well entrenched that they couldn't be sort of alphabetized. Well, it did spread hugely. It did not spread to those areas of the world that use ideograms, as you say, China and Japan primarily. The Mayans used some form of glyph. But on the whole, alphabetical script took over the world. It is the primary form of writing, and it is precisely, as you say, because it's efficient. Instead of having to learn whether it was cuneiform in ancient times or now in China, although they use pinyin a lot, the, the Romanized form of writing, precisely because it too is more efficient. It was very much a thing of learning 24, 26, 28, depending on the language, symbols, rather than thousands and thousands of symbols which you needed to use to write cuneiform or Egyptian ideograms. This sort of killer app, this idea of a set of 
letters that could be combined. What was it that started them in an order anyway? Why do we know that it goes A, B, C, D, E, or Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta? That we don't know. We know it goes back very far. There were some excavations at Lachish in the Middle East at a date I no longer remember off the top of my head, but to put in technical terms is old. And there there is there a, a sort of bit of graffiti. Somebody scribbled down the first five letters of the then alphabet and they appeared in the order we now know from its descendant, Old Hebrew. So we know that it was in the order it was in. Why it was in that order, very possibly something as simple as ease of memorization. You know, if it's in a set order, it's easier to teach to children or people who are learning to read. The question of memorization is one that's a big theme in at least the first half of the book. Can you talk a bit about how alphabetical order, you know, where we see it first starting to develop. And one thing that's a surprise to to me is, I think you say at the end of one of your early chapters, you say, you know, actually, the world owes a huge amount in alphabetical order to Aristotle. Yes, well, we're not 100% sure about the classical world and how much they used alphabetical order. It may be the case that the Great Library of Alexandria used first order, rudimentary, alphabetical order, although we don't know. The real block against us knowing anything more is the problem with papyrus, which after a century or so tends to decay. It rarely lasts more than two centuries. So any works that were written before parchment became routine or that were written on papyrus after parchment when they weren't copied on such an expensive medium had to be copied and recopied for centuries before they were finally copied onto parchment which meant that they might survive into the medieval or modern even modern period so Each time something is copied, it can be reordered. And consequently, quite a few things that we are told, often categorically told, were in alphabetical order, such as Aristotle's politics. We don't actually know because we don't know the original documents and they are copied and recopied. And... So what we actually have is until the medieval period, we have guesses. And it looks like from other things that have survived, whether it is tax records sometimes or just random documents, alphabetical order is sometimes used. It's clearly a system that is known But it's not the go-to system. Tax records are usually organized geographically. Many more records are organized hierarchically. As late as the 11th and 12th centuries, government documents are frequently hierarchical. The Doomsday Book is actually in hierarchical and then geographical order, intermixed. 
So, so it's, it's by, the king and the lord and the lord of the manor and they're all the way down. Uh, it, so it's, it starts with the king and then it goes by geographical district and in each geographical district you work from the greatest nobles through the grand clergy, through the merchants and down to the humblest landowners. So we know that this was simply the standard system. We see over and over handfuls of methods that we wouldn't consider like hierarchical. They could be chronological. In other words, documents are just piled up and then bound together. Some church documents or tax documents are simply geographical in the sense they are in the order the tax gatherer walked along a main road, you know, which houses he came to first. So we have all of these systems intermixed and it's really the 13th and 14th century before we begin to get to alphabetical order. This is a very long-winded way of getting back to your original question, which is to say that in the 13th and 14th century, with the arrival of scholasticism, with the growth of the universities, we see for the first time a need amongst teachers, as it were, um, instead of appealing to the church as the final arbiter, they are now constructing arguments using sources, whether it is now the great rediscovered classics like Aristotle, or in a theological setting, whether it is the fathers of the church. They are now citing sources. And of course, if you're citing sources, helps to be able to put your hand on the source. And so for the first time we get, and don't forget this is pre, long pre-printing, so these are manuscript books, but they are being indexed for the first time so that these university teachers, so these humanists, these scholasticists can put their hand on the citation they need. And this is one of the prime movers of alphabetical order. Also, in what you said is implied something that seems to me to run through your book, which is this implication that a sort of resistance to alphabetical order is bound up with these ideas, first of hierarchy, i.e. that there is, you know, a natural order to things, and second with this idea of memory, whereby an authority should have committed it all to memory, and that if you can look it up, you're cheating. Well, there is some sense of that. And there's also, particularly in the church, there is this uh, memory is a very important element. So an awful lot of the notation that goes on, whether it is vocabulary, for instance, difficult Latin words translated into whatever vernacular it is, they're very often in, say, if it's their words in the Bible, they're in the order of appearance in the Bible. So the words don't start with A, but they start with the first section of Genesis. And it's very hard for us to remember today how important memory was, because we don't use it very much. Our memory is concerned with where do I find that piece of information? How do I look something up? not what that something is. But a very 
useful example that was given to me of how memory functions in a kind of different area of our brain is to say, put the days of the week in alphabetical order. And of course, the first thing is, why would I do that? I mean, what's the point? I mean, Monday's first, that's it. And even once you get past that hurdle, it's, this is actually quite difficult. So with these clergy, they knew the Bible, they knew the church fathers so well that to say put it into alphabetical order, in part you think, why would I do that? The second part, and particularly with the great encyclopedists of the Middle Ages who created these unbelievably elaborate encyclopedias trying to describe the universe, to say that you should put it in alphabetical order. These books were often called, as well as thought of, as a mirror of the world. What you were doing was reflecting God's creation. So if you decided to put the angels first, because angels, Angeli, starts with A and God, Deus, starts with D, there are two possibilities. Either you're a subversive or you're very stupid and you don't understand the glory of God's creation. The glory of God's creation surely means you start with God. You move through the angels, the saints, mankind, animals, vegetables, minerals. And it's very often in these encyclopedias, only when you get to non-sentient beings, either vocabulary or uh, vegetables and minerals, that they choose to put them in alphabetical order because there is no hierarchy. Well, that that's, a, I mean, what's fascinating about, you know, you're describing a sort of medieval objection to that. But as late as the sort of, you know, late 18th, early 19th centuries, you, get, you have a sort of resonant quote from Samuel Taylor Coleridge saying, you know, we shouldn't put encyclopedias in alphabetical order. Alphabetical order made, made Coleridge crazed because to him, the glory of knowledge was that you built up this structure based on the Baconian tree of knowledge. And so to have sort of what he called atomized pieces of knowledge, as he said, like broken shards of mirror, they reflect little bits, but they have no meaning together. It was two things. It it was for Coleridge, it was shocking that you are wrenching it out of context. For other people, it was snobbery. It was a thing of, you know, I had a classical education, so I know all of this stuff. And, you know, it might be, you can hear me pulling my skirts aside, it might be tradesmen who read this and learn bits and pieces. But of course, what happened was people like Chambers, with his encyclopedia, knew that their market was exactly that that the intelligent reader who was educated could search the bits he wanted. And this would help the people who had not had the glories of the cl- a classical education. Yes, you say on that, on that front that Diderot and Lalaubert, you know, kind of coming after Chambers, sort of occluded the fact that they, 
they really owed him a debt because he was a bit trade. You know, they preferred to reference Bacon. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, they acknowledge Bacon loudly and clearly at the beginning of the Encyclopédie. But really, they are following Chambers and they know it. But Chambers is very déclassé. But of course, by the time you get to Diderot and d'Alembert, you've got another reason for using alphabetical order. The great encyclopedists of the Middle Ages wrote the encyclopedias themselves, single people. So you can write in this kind of arc and create a unity as a sole author. If you're Diderot and d'Alembert and you want to make sure that Montesquieu and Voltaire and all your buddies get a commission, you can't have this overarching structure if you've got hundreds of people you're commissioning to write articles on their areas of expertise. So expertise as well breaks into the hierarchical order. And that's again something that happens in the 18th century. This idea that one person can know everything becomes this idea that one person should not know everything. Instead, they should know how to look it up. Yes, which is, a, you know, one of the great democratising themes of your of your book. Um, to, to jump back a bit, and I know we're jumping back and forth, which I'm very happy with, and it sort of rather fits with the fits with the subject in some ways. But one of the great heroes of the book, which you haven't mentioned yet, is Isidore of Seville. Can you tell me a bit about Isidore and what he, you know, because he's right right close to the beginning, isn't he? Isidore is is very close to the beginning, and he is one of the earliest alphabetical list makers. He's one of the great fathers of the church, and he also wrote an encyclopedia. He, he is one of the earliest encyclopedists in the 7th century. And he's one of those people who absolutely has a hierarchical structure until he gets to the bits that don't have a hierarchy. And then he moves to alphabetical order. First letter alphabetical order, that is all that there is at this stage. But we also know a little bit, possibly, about how he organised his books, because, of course, one of the great uses of alphabetical order is to create a system to find books. This is one of the most common reasons that people slip to alphabetical order in the Middle Ages and the early modern period. And Isidore develops a system which is sort of subject category-ish. And he's one of the first people that we know how he organised his books. And it's much, much later on we get to somebody like Robert Cotton in the 16th century, who was a diplomat and an MP and also one of the great manuscript collectors of all time. He, his manuscript collection is the core now of the British Library's manuscript collection. And if you look up, say, Beowulf, which was a manuscript that Cotton owned and is now in the British Library, it is the sole surviving copy of Beowulf. So if Cotton had not had it, we would not have Beowulf. And 
If you look it up, and I, I'm making up the actual references because I don't remember what its British Library shelf mark is, but it is the shelf mark that Cotton gave it. And Cotton had, in his library, he had busts of Roman emperors, which went on the top of each of his bookcases. And so he catalogued his manuscripts by lettering each shelf and then counting along. So if, say, Beowulf was on the bookcase surmounted by the bust of the Emperor Vitellius, it was on the top shelf and it was the 15th book along, Cotton would have called it Vitellius A15. And indeed, if you look up today in the British Library, and you look up Beowulf, you will see that its catalogue mark is, and as I say, I've actually made up the emperor and the reference numbers because I don't remember what Beowulf is, but it is absolutely Roman emperor, letter, Roman numeral. Yes, I was so struck by this, actually, I wrote down the catalogue number for the Gawain and the Green Knight manuscript, which is also the only which one. Which is? Which is Cotton Nero A10. And you, and you can you go. And Google that on the British Library's Ollis system. I think it's called Ollis, isn't it, or whatever, and that will come up. And that's a sort of amazing token of the way in which, you know, reordering catalogues was hard. So everything kind of ended up being barnacled on top of older systems to a large extent, wasn't it? I mean, the one great attempt to reorganise was the French Revolution, which you talk about. The, the, the French Revolution was this fabulous attempt to catalogue every book owned by every library in France. And it failed miserably. They probably got about 10%. I mean, there were whole departements in France that simply replied to this questionnaire that was sent out saying they owned no books, which is clearly not true. But one of the great things of the French Revolution in terms of alphabetizing and in terms of cataloging is they sent instructions. I mean, the whole thing was very centralized, very French, about how each book in every library across France was to be cataloged. And they were to take playing cards which in the 18th century were not shiny like we know them, and they were not printed on the back. So you had the suits and the numbers on one side, and the other side was blank. And so they were to take these playing cards, so you had something of a standard size, and you were to write, it told you these instructions, exactly how to do it, you know, the name of the author, the name of the book, keywords, I mean, very much what we expect of a catalogue today. And the most important part about this was that playing card. It is basically the birth of the index card. And of course, what cards do instead of paper, which is what had been used before, what people would do is they would write these long, 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 long lists. They would be cut up into slips. They would be shuffled into whatever order people decided on and then copied into ledgers. So library catalogues were bound. Indeed, when I joined the London Library in 1980-something, the London Library catalogue was a bound ledger or a series of bound ledgers. 
But of course, this isn't practical as you acquire more books. So the creation of the card catalog, which means things can be reordered and reshaped as new ideas come along, instead of, as you say, barnacle-like accretions growing on top of older catalogs, was hugely important in changing how people looked at organising and classifying. And, of course, a great boon to my colleagues in the Society of Indexers, without whom, you know, (laughs) we'd all have a lot more trouble navigating our books. Now, this mention of library cataloguing also, you know, brings in another of the incidental characters. I had not realised quite how bananas and weirdly retrograde the Dewey Decimal System is, and what a bad hat its creator is, too. Dewey was the bad hat to end all bad hats. He was, first of all, to my total disgust, he spelt his name M-E-L-V-I-L, his first name, Melville. Um, He dropped the second L-E as Otios. Uh, And to me, that's what you do when you're 12, but you try and grow out of that kind of thing, I feel. But I, I do admit that that's probably not the worst thing he did. Melville Dewey was a shocker. He... Amongst other things, he, he, he was one of the founders of the American Library Association, which he was asked to resign for, for the mere fact that he had apparently assaulted four women in 10 days. That apparently was too much for them, even in the early 20th century. He was a notorious racist and anti-Semite in days when neither of those things were really anything that bothered people very much. So if it bothered people, he was bad. But the real problem with the decimal system as opposed to Melville Dewey was that he came up with this system. He had graduated from Amherst College. He was in his early 20s. He did not know very much about library cataloging. He did not know of any of the innovations that had taken place over the previous century or so in Europe. I don't think he had much interest And he created in his 20s this system, which in idea is not bad, but in creation is very limited. The system is a numerical one. So, for example, you just have a series of numbers and there are 10 categories, 0 to 9, followed by two digits that refine the category further. Then there's a decimal point, and then there are more numbers which narrow down your category with each decimal point. But it sounds kind of modern because it's it's sort of a decimal and mathematical, but it's Bacon's tree of knowledge again, isn't it? It's based on Bacon's tree of knowledge, and more to the point, it is, in terms of the allocation of categories, it is very much a system based in late 19th century white male Christian worldview. So, for example, the religious category, religion has, is the 200s. 200 to 289 is Christianity. Islam gets one single number, 297. Women, very sweetly, and it's awfully touching, are categorized alongside etiquette. The other problem is that the Dewey Decimal System does not guide you to a specific book. It guides you to a subject. 
So if you want to look up butterflies, for example, you'll go to the natural sciences, then you go to zoology, then you go to invertebrates, then you go to insects, then you go to lepidoptera, and each one is a decimal point along. And finally, you get to butterflies. That's great. If this library has shelves and shelves and shelves of books on butterflies, you then have to go through each book, eat the spine of each book to find it. So it has to work in conjunction with a card catalog to be useful. So the system is functional, but it's not fabulous. And I hate Dewey. <laughs> that's that's perfectly legitimate. What are the, I mean, again, jumping back a bit, obviously we didn't have standardised spelling until, you know, 300 years ago or so, less than that, in fact. Was that a bit of a bitch when it came to, to putting things into alphabetical order? Is that one of the reasons it didn't become as general as it did as fast? It's certainly one of the reasons, but again, it's rather like Coleridge and the Encyclopedia. For many, dictionaries were for the learned. So there are dictionaries from the Middle Ages, Latin dictionaries, which were, for the most part, gradually in successive alphabetical order until you have all the word, all you know, all the letters in alphabetical order, not just the first letter anymore. But for example, the Académie Française, with their great French dictionary, their dictionary, which was many, many, many decades in the making, was organized not alphabetically or not solely alphabetically but by etymology so you had to have a certain level of education to be able to navigate this dictionary and indeed someone else published a dictionary shortly before theirs which was organized in alphabetical order and the academy française was very sniffy about it they said well pooh some people prefer to use speed in finding a word. And you thought, yeah, hon, we do. But they thought this was a total waste. That, you know, really, it was the educated gentleman who would know the etymology of a word and therefore be able to use the dictionary perfectly well. There wasn't a the sense that if you knew the etymology, you didn't need the dictionary. Well, exactly. But also, it was precisely until the early modern period when spelling begins to be regularised but of course, equally, you know, it's sort of like trying to look up somebody whose name it begins with Mac. Now, you probably don't know whether it's MC or MAC, so you try both. You know, if you didn't know whether Verbena was spelt with a V or a B, because both were possible, well, you try both. What are the sort of more, more kind of ingenious and fascinating sections of your book deals with the sort of the physical technology of ordering things? I mean, for instance, absolutely started to say that, that Hook, you know, the great naturalist, he used moth glue to stick things onto his books that could then be removed. I mean, I was like, he invented the post-it note. He did invent the post-it note, although many people invented the post-it note. This, this was quite common. I mean, the great, the great atlas maker Artelius also used moth glue and so did several others. Because for the most part, people used notebooks rather than loose paper. If they wanted to be able to reorganize 
their papers as they got new ideas or as they took one piece of knowledge and began to apply it to another subject. They had to find some way of temporarily being able to move things or Ortelius in particular, in creating his notebooks, he wanted to use alphabetical order. But of course, if you are using bound notebooks, eventually that's not going to work. I mean, we all know, having tried to do things in alphabetical order, and you have little arrows and lines and see page 47 and you run out of space. So he used moth glue, this sort of lightly tacky stuff that was used normally to pin specimens to a page and I like with hook particularly because it's spelled G-L-E-W which made it sound much gluier. Yeah it does. So if things you know if you got more in M um, and you needed to move N a couple of pages on you could do that. So it was hugely important before people began to use loose papers regularly that you found some kind of temporary system. Robert Boyle was one of the few who did not use bound ledgers because he was terrified of losing a whole ledger. He figured if you you lose a page, you lose a page. You know, it's a day's work or a week's work, but it's not a year's work. And he came up with all of these different methods to catalogue He used different colour string and ribbons, and at one point he wrote a little poem, a mnemonic poem, to try and remember what was in what coloured file, and different boxes. And indeed, the only thing he seems not to have used was alphabetical order. I should ask, though it's, you know, your, your, your book is primarily concerned with alphabetic languages. How do they order things in languages where they have kanji, or similar in China or Japan, or... They use very interesting systems. Uh, For much of Chinese history, uh, they had dictionaries of centuries before Latin-based languages came up with dictionaries, for the most part. The Chinese used a system where the radicals, the brushstrokes of each ideogram, were categorized. And each ideogram had one principal radical, And each radical, therefore, was given its own section in the dictionary. And you looked it up first by the important radical, then by the number of brushstrokes. So it had that kind of hierarchical order. More recently, I've been told that with the arrival of keyboards and computers, what's happening in China is very interesting. And that dictionaries are now almost entirely pinyin, the Romanized form, the 19th century Romanized form of writing. And what happens is people will use, on their phone when they're sending a text, say, they will type in on an English, a Roman alphabet keyboard, the pinyin of a word. They'll get up the three or six or eight or whatever it is, characters that might be appropriate for that opinion, spelling. They'll tap the one that's correct and it'll go up and then they'll do the next word. So what's happening, which is really interesting, is in, and so dictionaries are now organized by opinion, spelling, 
But what's happening is that what was the norm, a mostly preliterate society in the West, where many people could read who could not write. They were two separate acts. They, they weren't reading and writing together. What's happening in China, I'm told, is that there are now people who don't write very well because everything's on the keyboard. It's all pinyin. They can read perfectly well because the ideograms come up, but not write. They can't do the ideograms? Yeah. In Japan, they unfortunately, they, they, they no longer use the system, but they had a beautiful system for organizing according to the syllabic alphabet, which was there was a medieval poem which used each of the syllables just once in this poem, and they used all of them. So you memorized the poem, and that was the order that dictionaries were structured in. That's just a delightful detail. <laughs> a poem is a key. Finally, I should just ask, is the story that you have written in this book one that's nearing its end? Does search, digital search, mean that alphabetical order is going to become redundant? It's a very interesting question. I mean, I'm happy to say that as a historian, the future is not my period. So I can't really tell you what's going to happen. But as I say, we, we, we didn't get alphabetical order in common use until about the 13th century. It may be that in three, four, five hundred years, people look back and see that alphabetical order was a phase, an 800-year phase, but a phase. I am aware that we still do use alphabetical order, even online. If you look up, you remember that there was an MP named Johnson, but you can't remember anything more about him or what his first name was. You go to Wikipedia, you look up Johnson, and it will bring up all the Johnsons in alphabetical order. So we still do use it, but for how much longer, I don't know. Well, maybe we'll reconvene in 800 years' time and find out. Thank you very much indeed. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.